Well, welcome. Welcome to City Life. Thank you, Chris, for leading us in worship. Thank you, Amanda, for doing such a great job closing it. Uh, that was a powerful time of worship. And I, just as I was praying, as we were in that moment of free praise before the last song where uh, Chris was exhorting us to just receive the love of God, just uh, just thinking about John 3.16, many of us are familiar with the verse. It's easy for it to roll off our tongue that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, right? But I think sometimes when we think about it for us as individuals and we think about Jesus coming to die for us, it's because God was so appalled by us. He's stressed out by the way we're living our life for this, that, or the third, and that's why Jesus came to die for us. But no, it's because God loved you that he sent his son. It's because God loves you that Jesus came and died for you. And we've been in this series, Autumn on the Mount, and each week we're talking about what it means to be a disciple, because this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And I would pray that each one of us tonight will be able to make the confession that, that John made, that, that I'm the disciple Jesus loves. That you'll be able to go home tonight, whatever else you take home about being a disciple of Christ and what it means to follow Christ, that you'll be able to say with your lips that I'm a disciple that Jesus loves. That God so loved me that Jesus came and died for me. So I don't know who needed to hear that. Maybe every single one of us need to be reminded of that. But, but not only are we learning about how to be disciples and what that looks like to follow Christ, God loves you. That should be the fuel for the journey. But I don't know who needed to hear that, but I wanted to share that. But if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. As we're jumping back onto the series, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it Autumn on the Mount. And like somebody made the remark already tonight, it's beginning to feel like autumn, finally. Uh, for some of you, that means you start craving pumpkin spice, like it's some kind of drug. Uh, some of you guys, you eat that terrible abomination called candy corn. Y'all crave that when it starts getting cold. Me, man, I just want to break out all my hoodies because it's hoodie season and eat some chili. That's what it like when it starts getting cool. I'm like, yes, let me get all my hoodies out of my closet in an easy to access place again. And let me eat some chili. Where's the closest chili cook off? And let me go there, right? That's what it means when it gets cool for me. But we've been in this series now for, I believe, the better part of a month. And we open looking at the setting because this is the Sermon on the Mount. The very title of it is a descriptive. But it says before Jesus spoke that he withdrew from this massive crowd that was there. And it says that his disciples came to him. So at least at the beginning of this sermon, what we know is Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's encouraging his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. And we took from that, if you want to grow up, you want to be a disciple, show up, right? Come to Christ every day in devotions. Come to Christ on the weekend. But that's the setting. And then we looked at the Beatitudes, this opening to the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus basically introduces this upside-down kingdom full of paradox, these seeming contradictions that are actually packed with wisdom for life. And this speaks to the character he wants in his disciples and then last week we talked about the image of salt and light and how this informs our influence as disciples. But from here, as we get to verse 17, it's like Jesus hits the gas. Like, I, if, again, when I get to heaven, I want to listen to it. I want to watch the Sermon on the Mount. I, I could imagine he picks up his cadence here as he begins to talk about the righteousness of a disciple. You know, again, in the sermon so far, the disciples heard the Beatitudes. And like we talked about, they're probably thinking, wait a second, what are we doing here? Right? Because they pictured this Messiah that had been prophesied in the Old Testament as somebody with political power, somebody with military might. So for them, they were kind of, they were on his entourage to position themselves for the coming of this kingdom. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts saying, well, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, not people that are going to topple the Roman government. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted, right? So they're asking questions already. And add this Add to this the fact that while they'd been with Jesus, he'd earned this reputation as a lawbreaker. Right? He and the disciples had got busted for uh, picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath because that was against the rules. He'd gotten in trouble uh, for healing people on the Sabbath because that was frowned upon. I think it's funny. You read through the Gospels. It's like, are the Pharisees everywhere? Like, are there just millions of them like, poking up their heads in the cornfields? Like, oh, you can't do that. Like, it's. But along with his criticism of religious leaders and the Pharisees, there was this suspicion that maybe Jesus wasn't fully orthodox in his commitment to the Old Testament and its commands. Like, is this what we're doing? Like, we're not here to topple the Roman government, but we're here to just topple the Old Testament? What's happening? So Jesus addresses these suspicions in verse 17. He's like, just in case you think I'm here, 
to end the law. He speaks these words, and he introduces us. We talked about the upside-down kingdom this week. He introduces us to the inside-out kingdom. And I want to read right now verses 17 through 20. And I'll throw them up on the screen. This is in the NIV. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some weighty words. And again, he opens with, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. From the, from the jump, he says, I'm fully committed to the law. I understand the law's original intent. I have the heart of God, so this isn't some opinion he's tossing out there. This is first-hand take on the law as divinity. Kind of a big deal. And he makes it crystal clear. He says the law or the prophets, right? So the law and the prophets, that's the entire Old Testament. He's not just talking about the Torah. He's not just talking about what the prophets had written. He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Then we read this other phrase, the least stroke of a pen, which in the King James Version says jot and tittle. You might say, what on earth is that? That's like uh, the smallest strokes in the Hebrew alphabet, like the serif on a T or the dot over an I. The smallest strokes of the Hebrew law, everything, all encompassing. Then he says, until heaven and earth disappear. Hasn't happened yet, right? We would have known if that happened. (laughs) So it still stands. And Jesus wants to make it clear that his beef, it's not with the law. He doesn't have an issue with the law. His issue is with the interpretation of the law that had been handed down for so long that had hijacked the heart of God behind it. It's why he says, I haven't come to abolish it. And he doesn't just say that. He adds that. He says, I've come to fulfill it, to fulfill the law. And this has many facets to it because we know that Jesus lived the law perfectly. He fulfilled it in that way so that he could die on the cross for you and for me. And we know as well that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king. I've been reading through Hebrews, which outlines this powerfully. But he's also speaking to the fact that his interpretation of the scriptures that he presents here, it completes and clarifies and fulfills God's original intent. And he's basically, in our, in our modern terms, subtweeting the Pharisees that had kind of hijacked the original intent of the law. But then he speaks directly to the Pharisees. Maybe not in person, but he's speaking about them when he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to cut it. You're not going to make it into heaven. So he's saying exceeds. So these Pharisees need to get their act right or they're not going to get into heaven. And maybe for us... We grew up in Sunday school, and we learned to boo the Pharisees, right? We learned the Pharisees are the bad guys because they were against Jesus. So maybe this is easy for us to swallow, that, yeah, our our righteousness would have to exceed theirs, and we can understand that. But for the people that were listening to him in this context, their perception of the Pharisees is that they were the epitome of ethical righteousness. You know, like we look around church and we think about those people that look like they're killing it in terms of following Christ and living right for God. Jesus is saying, do better than them or give up hope. That's what these disciples would have heard. You know, the Jewish leaders had taken God's commands in the Old Testament and developed 613 commandments. There were 248 commands, 365 prohibitions. So we're supposed to do better than that? Like what, are we supposed to intensify it, push it to a a, a thousand commandments? I'm not going to go around the room, but some of us might be like, I can't even, if you put me on the spot, name all the Ten Commandments, right? We got to do a thousand now. Because they knew these commandments, all 613. But I would tell you that the call wasn't to increase the quantity, but it was to increase the quality. Because the kingdom of grace, it takes ground, not externally, with command after command, but internally, from the inside out. Again, the Beatitudes show us this upside-down kingdom, but these teachings here, As Jesus explains, the law shows us that it's also an inside-out kingdom, that it's about transformation from the heart, not salvation by works. And it's why Jesus later would rebuke the Pharisees for cleaning the outside but leaving the inside, their hearts, filthy. But let me also work an example because maybe we're still struggling. This is uh, an action figure, but Raj calls it Nini. So 
<laughs> Black and Panther are not in his vocabulary yet, so apparently his name is Nini. But if I were to, like, spark a conversation with Nini and say, hey, buddy, I know where we can score illegal drugs and enjoy them. No chance of getting caught. He's not going to say yes to that temptation. I could say, man, I know a bank. Their whole, their whole setup is so just jacked up. We could rob it. No worries of getting caught. Again, he's not going to give in to the temptation. He's not going to say yes, right? I could say, look, I've got uh, all this adult material you can view. Nobody will ever know, and he's not going to give in to that temptation. I could do 12 other uh, offers, temptations, hundreds. He's never going to say, yeah, let, let me do that. And maybe you're thinking, this is so dumb. <laughs> Why is my pastor speaking to an action figure, right? <laughs> but this is where many of the religious in Jesus' day had progressed in their righteousness. They were like this, this figure in front of me. They could be counted on to do nothing wrong, but to actually do right, right, like to do justice, to extend mercy, right? It's why in, again, Matthew 23, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees a few times in the Gospels, right? He told the religious of his day, he rebuked them for practicing religion, but neglecting what he called the weightier parts of the law, the underlying importance, really the basics, which he called justice, mercy, and righteousness. Again, he's never going to uh, uh, succumb to any of my temptations, but he's also not going to be available if I'm like, hey, I know people that need help around the house. I, need peop- I know people that need to be served. He's not good for that. And again, this is where they progressed in their righteousness. The Pharisees had taken the law so far and made it so detailed that they'd forgotten the basics, that the law was first and foremost intended to impact us inwardly. I don't know where to, Chrissy's going on your keys. He'll be there later. It's not just about your deeds. It's not just about your do-nots, but your heart was supposed to match your deeds. The reality we work toward in our discipleship, in our following of Christ, is this, that if your affections are fixed on God more and more in life, then your actions gradually fix themselves. The more you fix your affections on Christ and God, then your actions will change because you're being changed from the inside out. Where do I get that from? Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, that in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's saying, give God your worship and affection and your mind and actions, they'll be renewed over time. This is the righteousness of a disciple, right? One that works from the inside out. This inside out kingdom doesn't advance through law change, doesn't advance through regime change. It advances through heart change, person by person. That's what Jesus goes on to illustrate. But many people, scholars, would point to Matthew 5.20 and point to that as the key that unlocks the entire Sermon on the Mount. Again, this this call he gives us to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and have the righteousness of a disciple. You might say, okay, how? Will you replace the external legalistic perspective with an internal spiritual one. And if Jesus just dropped the mic and walked off after this, it might be kind of vague, kind of ethereal. You're still asking some questions like, okay, how, what does this look like? But again, Jesus hits the gas, so buckle up. We're going to roll through these passages tonight. We might not hit on each one verse by verse. But again, Jesus begins to give example after example about exactly what he's talking about. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount is called by many the antithesis because Jesus says repeatedly, you have heard it said, but I say. And there's a pattern here again and again. He points to what God had handed down in the Old Testament. And then he highlights the the current application in that culture by religious teachers. And then he gives an authoritative pronouncement on the heart behind the law. Again, he's not upset with the law. He doesn't have beef with the law. It's the interpretation that they've been given for so long that they've forgotten the heart behind it. He tells the disciples, this is the application of the law you've heard. Here's the basic, weightier, more important truth that's been long forgotten. So I want to read real quickly uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, where he hits on murder and anger. He says, you've heard it said, or you, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift 
there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So what is he talking about? Well, he opens and says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, anger is subject to judgment. And he basically says, to call people names is to choose a path to hell. Now, it's important from the jump, are murder and anger equivalent? No, because murder is clearly a sin, right, in the Bible. One of the Ten Commandments, anger is not in itself a sin. Jesus felt anger and yet never sinned. Right, you see in Ephesians 4.26, in the New King James Version, Paul says, be angry. We highlighted this in the summer when we talked about road rage. What can we quickly deduce is that anger, it's not a sin. Things will happen that in the moment make you angry, and that's okay, but context is key. Because Paul immediately says after be angry, he says, don't let the sun set on your anger. And he's setting up for what he says in verse 31 where he says, get rid of your anger. So anger will happen, sometimes rightfully so. Somebody offends you, somebody does something to you, you get angry, but you don't get to keep it, right? What do you do with your anger? Jesus says right here, be reconciled, forgive, let go of your hate, as Obi-Wan would say. <laughs> let go of your anger, right? What do, you, what do you do with it? Jesus calls us to forgive, extend grace, reconcile. Jesus tells us to be reconciled with other people. He says, look, you got a gift to give me as God? Leave that behind if you need to be reconciled to somebody else. Do that first because that's how important it is. Let go of your anger. And the bottom line for this command not to murder, Jesus is saying, look, if nobody let their anger burn, would there be murder, right? If you just let go of anger and dehumanizing other people, would you be able to kill them? Would you be able to murder them? And it's not just about murder, though. He gets to the heart of murder, which is anger. Again, dehumanizing another person. The external manifestation, it starts inside. So get to the root. Change your heart. Change internally is what Jesus is saying. But as we'll see again and again in these examples, an external focus on the law and do not. If we just know the line of do not is over here, it's like, okay, well, how close can I get to the line and be okay if all you're focused on is the, the do not? Jesus says, don't even call anybody names or you might be going to hell, right? Like, in our culture, that's wild. Because from the first grade classroom, when you learn to talk, all the way to, like, the Oval Office, everybody's calling people names. It's just in our culture, we're calling people names. But in that time, in Jewish culture, it was considered a serious affront to one's identity, an affront to their humanity. It was like identity theft on the heart level, to call somebody names. Jesus says, never overlook another person's dignity ever, right? If you always see other people as children of God with dignity in their humanity, then you're not going to be able to kill them because you'll see their value. But again, this isn't just about murder. True disciples don't just not murder. He says don't even harbor anger, right? Reconcile with one another. See dignity, see the humanity in one another. They replace anger with love. And then Jesus goes on in verses 27 through 30. He speaks to adultery. And he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you... For you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Uh, another weighty passage, right? And he says again, you've heard it say don't commit adultery, but I say. I say don't even look lustfully. And the word for looking lustfully here in the Greek, it's the same word that's used for coveting. So he's tying the two Old Testament commandments. Don't commit adultery and don't covet your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's things. He's, he's tying them together here. And then he nonchalantly tells us to mutilate whatever body part might cause us to sin. You're like, you can't just skip over that. But Jesus, he's using hyperbole. He's using extreme words to make a point. And I tell people again and again, this means if there's sin in your life, you need to make extreme measures to remove it. Right? There's, there's no way to get around that in the text. But if you took this literally, right, we've all sinned with our eyes. Right? We'd all have eye patches. 
We've all sinned with our hands. We all have hooks. We would quickly develop into just pirates around here, left-handed pirates with hooks on our right hand and eye patches. Pirates would be saints if, like, just changing yourself externally was the goal. But you know where we'd still be jacked up? Our hearts. You remove that, you're dead, right? God wants to change your heart. He wants to change you from the inside out. Again, I use this all the time to tell people, like, if there's sin in your life, for men that struggle with pornography or looking at things, if that causes you to sin, take drastic measures. If it's your smartphone that causes you to sin, get a flip phone, right? If, if you're sitting in your bedroom, move that computer to your living room. They're like, that's drastic. That's the point, right? That's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. But again, to take him literally, if I cut out my tongue when I hurt somebody with my words, when Jesus changes my heart, I couldn't speak life to them, right? If I cut off my hand when I harm myself or another person, as Jesus changes my heart, I couldn't use those same hands to help somebody. So on, so forth. Pluck out my eye because I use that in the wrong way. That means I wouldn't be able to look around when God has restored my heart to see the needs around me that he wants me to respond to. Again, Jesus is pointing to changing ourselves internally. It's not just about what we shouldn't do. It's about what we should do. In this case, live pure, right? It's not just about lust. It's live pure, that's easier said than done in our culture where, like, lust is the national pastime. But, again, start with the root issue. You don't start with adultery. What he's saying here is if there was no indulgence of lust and coveting, there wouldn't be adultery because we nip it at the bud, at the heart level. You know, in the church so often we make purity about sex, and there's nothing wrong with that. But purity doesn't start with who you let in your bed. Purity starts with what you let in your heart. When we read the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Not like the person with the best sheets. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's saying be changed inside. Change your affections and it will change your actions. Dr. Thomas Chalmers, a great Scottish preacher, he spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. A new affection in your life will work some other stuff out. Again, if you set your affections on God, it will change your actions the expulsive power of a new affection. But again, if it's all about the do not, don't commit adultery, and it's like, okay, how close can I get to the line without stepping into that sin? Talking to people with boyfriends or girlfriends all the time, well, how much can I do before I'm sinning? Or how much can I look at before it's a sin, right? The opposite of that, which Jesus is having us work towards, live pure, right? And if there's something that causes you to sin in these ways, Make a radical change. Maybe that, that girlfriend, boyfriend that's causing you to ask these questions, maybe get rid of them altogether, right? Adultery is a big deal. Why? You know, yesterday, Wayne and Danielle got married, and they had this beautiful wedding, and uh, I was able to do it and, and spoke again and again of this picture in Ephesians 5 where marriage is supposed to represent God's love for his people, Jesus' love for the church, right, that the church Loves Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for the church. That's this picture that marriage is supposed to give. We see it right in Ephesians 5. And God takes that seriously. Right? That's why he, he treasures marriage. And I think that's probably why Jesus jumps right from adultery and into divorce. We can read Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Where he says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you. That anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And I want to spend some time on this because few passages have caused more harm than when this is taught irresponsibly. Jesus, it's important again to look at what he's saying and look at what he's not saying in this passage. He's making a point and he's using dramatic speech. Because at this time, a man could divorce a woman for basically any reason under the sun. Just say, I'm done, file for divorce. But Jesus pushes back. He stands for woman in this text, and he guards their well-being, and he speaks to this not because of one offense, but because of two offenses against God. There was a low view of marriage and a low view of women. And that, like at that time, we see in our time this unspoken question. Again, if you can toe the line, how lightly can I treat marriage? Like if you look at divorce rates, and not just divorce rates, but the rates of people living together outside of marriage, not just in the church, but outside of the church, then you begin to see, yeah, maybe we are treating marriage lightly. Marriage is given by God, and it's to be held in high regard. But it's notable as well that in this text, there's a case given where divorce is necessary. 
right? Because marriage is to be held in high regard. Again, Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, says God hates divorce. And it's because, again, it, it separates not just this love of man and woman, but the picture it's supposed to paint of God's love for his people. Yet, the other side of the coin is this. If you hold marriage in high regard, then you recognize that when marriage has so broken itself and marred the image of Christ and the church that it's a mercy to dissolve it. For what? In this text, Jesus says unfaithfulness, but I think it's powerful that he's just spoken of adultery. And he uses one word there. He uses a different word here for unfaithfulness, pornea, which speaks to something less specific. Right? It's sinful activity that would intentionally divide the marital relationship and make a mockery of something that was sacred. A sham of something that was supposed to paint the picture of God's love for his people. And ultimately, Jesus gets, again, to the deeper, weightier importance behind this law on divorce by saying, look, if you hold marriage in high regard, then you'll never take a provision of divorce and let it translate to a low view of marriage. And you'll never take a provision for divorce and let it translate to a low view of, of women or your spouse. To make a marriage vow is sacred. And I think that's why, again, Jesus transitions. And here he transitions to vows, to oaths. In Matthew 5, through 37, he says again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the Lord's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Some of us wish we could make our white hairs black, but we can't. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And that's a weighty statement. He's pointing to Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 27, to these Old Testament passages about making oaths. And he says, don't do it, right? And some people would take this verse and say, well, I'm never going to pledge the allegiance. If I'm in court, I'm not going to take an oath. But we see in Scripture, people do it. Jesus is saying, though, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And you should have such character and integrity that anything out of your mouth is worth trusting. Again, the bottom line, the, the way to your truth is we wouldn't need oaths and vows if people were true to their word 100% of the time. But people would ask, again, if, if the line is the do not, then how lightly can I use my words? Right? Some Old Testament interpreters of the law at the time of Jesus had made some loopholes where they said, if you don't make an oath on the name of God, then you can go back on it. So people would swear by Jerusalem or they'd swear by their the hair on their head, or, you know, we swear by our mother's grave, but they could go back on it if it wasn't an oath made in the name of the Lord. So they were finding loopholes. We do the same thing. Maybe not in the same way, but, you know, we'll say, like, yeah, I'll be there at five. I promise. I swear, this time I'll make it, right? With your words, you're covering up a weakness in your life. You never show up on time, right? But if we're true to our words 100% of the time, Jesus would say, just do what you say you're going to do, right? A simple yes or no is all that's needed for a perfect trustworthy, honest person, be that person, right? But we can read further, verses 38 and onward. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This phrase, eye for an eye, it's, a, it's one we're familiar with, right, still in our day. It goes all the way back to Leviticus 24.20. But what's profound and what we need to recognize is it was given to judges to administer civil order. And it was given to prevent inappropriate punishment, right? It was given to equalize justice and prevent injustice. But people over history, and even in this time, would use it for themselves instead of taking things to court. Think the punisher, right? But in that day. And when you've got a Roman government that is oppressing people violently and persecuting them violently, maybe that kind of hero is needed, right? That takes justice into their own hands, an eye for an eye. But retaliation through violent resistance, it would have been, again, a hot topic amidst the Jews. But applied wrongly, this eye for an eye could not only result in people thinking that violent retaliation was permitted, but that it was necessary. But the directive, again, of an eye for an eye was for the courts to discourage individual retaliation, not encourage it. Leave retaliation in the judge's hands. It wasn't encouragement to lower yourself to violence, but to rise above. And this is the background 
for Jesus' perhaps even more famous statement, one which maybe we don't embrace as much as a culture. Uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also, right? Turn the other cheek. You've probably heard this before. And it's not to diss any left-handed people here. I'm left-handed. But if you were slapped in the right cheek, people would have understood that Jesus is talking about somebody who's right-handed hitting you with the back of their palm. It was a massive insult in that day. It wasn't about maximizing pain. If you want to maximize pain, you're going to clock somebody with your fist. A backhanded slap, though, wasn't just about the cheek. It was a massive insult, again. It was meant to get into the victim's head, get into their heart. It's not just about a cheek being struck. Your, your soul is struck when somebody insults you in this way. Your heart, your humanity is hurt. So this verse isn't just about assaults. And if somebody's beating you, then turn the other cheek. It's about insults. It's not about sitting under pain or passively embracing abuse like a masochist. Nor is it a call to be wimps, cowards, or pacifists. Jesus cares about justice. But insults, insults only matter to the insecure. You can take an insult, and if you're secure in your identity, keep it moving. You can rise above if you're secure, if you're strong. But still, all of this, you know, turn the other cheek, give and don't refuse, go the extra mile, which you hear in this passage. For us in our culture, we think, yeah, I could agree with that, right? Go the extra mile, put in the extra work. But here he's speaking, even do it for your enemy. And in this culture, not only could a Roman come up and slap you and you couldn't do anything, a Roman could ask for anything, and you're supposed to give it to him. Ask for the shirt off your back, and you'd have to take it off right there. Give it to the Roman soldier. Matter of fact, it was common for Roman soldiers to pick you out of a crowd and say, hey, carry my stuff for a mile, right? My mule is tired, so here, you carry this, you dog, right, as an insult to people. And Jesus is saying, don't just go one, but two. These are, these are hard words. For the people that would have been hearing it, maybe even a little irritating. The situation they're in, Jesus saying, not just these things, but going on in the next verse and the next passage, love your enemies. In that climate of persecution, violent persecution, that's a big statement, to love your enemies. But it sums up all he's just said. And he says here in this passage, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what he's pointing back to is Leviticus 19.18, which says, love your neighbor. Only this passage doesn't say, hate your enemy. But they've heard it said, they've heard it interpreted, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Man, this us versus them mentality that's pervasive in our culture. We're always looking to draw lines in the sand and make it me against you, us against them. It was just as prevalent then. And Jesus was speaking against it. It crept into the mindset of God's people then, and it creeps into our minds now through the dark side of politics and racism and alike, it works its way into the church. And anytime we make flesh and blood the enemy, we can be used by the enemy. It's a dangerous place because heaven's strategy isn't us versus them. Heaven's strategy since Genesis was me for them. Jesus coming to die for each one of us. Again, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you, he gave himself for sinners like me and like you who made themselves God's enemies through sin. This is me for them, and it's at the heart of the gospel. So as Christ's ambassadors, as Christians, as his church, our, our motto in life is not us versus them, it's us for them. The end game for Jesus was that everyone who had made themselves an enemy of God through sin and rebelling against him through sin, that they will be brought to him through his blood. The end game for the disciple of Jesus Christ then is anybody who I consider my enemy, the end game is for them to come to Christ, not be eliminated. It's the heart behind Jesus saying, love your enemies, and he can say it because he did it. <laughs> anybody will love those that are kind to him. But he says, I say to you, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father. He's saying you'll have his DNA because as he points to in this passage, the sun rises on both the evil and the good. The rain falls, and some of us are like, I hate rain. No, but back then it was good because they had crops, and they would have harvest if there was rain. Go to the DR. You'll understand the importance of rain. He's saying, I send that to the righteous and the unrighteous. He's saying, imitate that. And he doesn't stop there. Like, this just keeps escalating, right? Every step, you're like, are you serious? Are you serious? And then finally, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? This echoes, again, what God said in Leviticus, where he says, be holy, for I am holy. 
And Jesus, again, gives a deeper understanding of what's been said since the beginning. Be growing in holiness. But the word perfect here, I think, is, is powerful. Because perfect here speaks to the finished product, the completion, living up to what it's created to be. See, God is perfect because he always fulfills his purpose. God lives up to who he is as God. He's not good some of the time. God is good all of the time, right? He is consistent in being completely holy and righteous. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet mankind so often is unkind. Humanity lives inhumanely. And we are living as we're created to live as humans because we're broken. But we're called to love. We're called to love our God. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love our enemy. Because this shares God's heart, which is to share his love. Again, we've talked about how it's powerful. This goes down as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus teaches this on a hillside. Because the last time God spoke to a group of people like this, to teach them and instruct them, was back all the way back in Exodus and Leviticus, where he's giving them these laws. He's giving them these instructions. And sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, you're reading the end of Exodus through Leviticus, and you're like, does this really have to be so long? Can I jump ahead to Joshua where I know there's some action? But he goes into such detail because this is God revealing himself and his character and his holiness to his people for the first time. That's a big deal. And that's why it goes on for so long. These people, his people, the Israelites, as we've talked about, they're coming out of generations, centuries of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them out of that to Mount Sinai, again, to instruct them. Because they'd seen the ugliness of humanity. And God is trying to show them, no, this is what humanity should look like. The way I created humanity. Not to work inhumanely. Not for mankind to be unkind. But this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it was created to look like. And again, here we have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount taking the law and fulfilling us and reminding us what humanity is supposed to look like again. What his people are meant to look like. What the righteousness of his disciples is supposed to look like. One that starts internally. Does that affect your external behavior? Oh, absolutely. But trying to follow some 600 plus laws with your actions without changing your heart and affections is hard work. But, you know, the gospel, you know, there's work involved. But we so often might see it as hard work or a burden. But Jesus wants it to be heart work. And when God works on your heart, again, the more you let him change your affections and you place your affections on him, it just begins to change your actions. Sometimes sometimes it's still a struggle. You need to bring other people in. You need to work through it. Sometimes it just comes naturally. When I started following Christ, I used to cuss like a sailor. That changed real fast. There was no, like, massive decision, it, it just changed. Because the more I set my affections on Christ, the more my actions changed. It's not supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be hard work that changes us from the inside out. Your internal affections of the heart are the firm foundations for your outward actions. And when you set your affections on God, the actions follow. Again, does that mean it happens like that? Sometimes you need accountability. Sometimes you need encouragement. Sometimes you need challenging. But as you set your affections on God more and more, You're changed from the inside out. But if I could have the worship team come up. There's a a quote from Mark Twain. Guy had a sense of humor. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And these teachings that we go through in the Sermon on the Mount, these aren't lighthearted teachings. They're kind of bothersome. (laughs) They're hard. For some people, they're even offensive. Again, you think of the Israelites in their culture, what they're going through under the Romans, and Jesus is saying, love your enemies, right? Bless those that persecute you. Go the extra mile. There was a teacher at Texas A&M. This has been mentioned in in Philip Yancey's books, in Tim Keller's sermons. It's maybe famous in our Christian subculture, probably not a famous story. But at Texas A&M, there was a professor, an English professor, that gave her freshman students the Sermon on the Mount. And they were to write a paper about what they thought about the Sermon on the Mount. She figured they grew up in the Bible Belt, most of these guys. They they would have been familiar with it and probably had a a low-key reverence for it, this Sermon on the Mount. And they wrote all the papers. She starts going through the stack of the papers. These are the opening sentences to their papers. The first paper opened, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. Okay, right? The second, though, didn't change in tone. Opening, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. The third paper didn't change. 
It's hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago. Throughout these papers that she got back, there was this prevailing tone under what was written of anger about these teachings that seemed so absolute, so impossible. You know, in our culture that treasures common sense, treasures balance, there's something uncomfortably extreme about the Sermon on the Mount. But maybe it's not just about extremism. It's about absolutes. Because again, in the law, in the commandments, in this teaching, we see God's absolute holiness. God is absolutely holy. Nothing less is in him. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we're confronted not just with this absolute holiness, but we're confronted with the fact that this holy heart of God is what's supposed to come alive in our hearts. We're supposed to strive to be perfect and holy as he is holy. It's this inside-out kingdom that's supposed to do work in our hearts. And it would seem impossible and altogether disheartening. And maybe you'd have the perspective of these students if you didn't know that Jesus matches this call to absolute holiness with absolute grace. That there is absolute grace that is offered to us. And at the Sermon on the Mount, we get this picture of absolute holiness. But Jesus extends absolute grace. You know, if I was solely focused on my, what you could call positional salvation, right? I'm under the blood, I'm good. And I became complacent about my personal growth, this absolute holiness, and this teaching here calls me forward again. But if I were to focus solely on my experience of working toward perfection and just focus again and again on my inevitable failings to be perfect, absolute grace picks me up again. You know, these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount should give us what I've heard one person called restful dissatisfaction, where I find peace and contentment with the work of Christ in the cross, but I'm balanced by this desire, this restlessness to be more like Him, to be perfect, to be complete. There should be a divine dissatisfaction. As we talked about when talking about the Beatitudes, a good grief as we see things in our life that need to change. And if we could stand as we're about to go into worship, I know that the Holy Spirit is here. He's been here since the opening notes of worship. He's been here since pre-service prayer. He's been here before we showed up. And I know he's working in our hearts. And he might be stirring some divine dissatisfaction. He might be stirring some good grief and just laying his finger on areas in our lives that need to change. Maybe it's coveting or lust. Maybe it's a tendency to lie and exaggerate or even go back on your word. Maybe it's a tendency to dehumanize others when they disagree with you. I don't know what it is. There's probably things in your life that weren't even addressed tonight that God wants to work on. Not in a bad way. There's absolute grace here tonight because of Jesus Christ and the cross. But if he's laying something on your heart tonight, then come on, let's deal with it. There's no safer place to deal with it than at the foot of the cross. Because at the, <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount shows us one thing. It's that before the absolute holiness of God, we're all on the same field. We're all in desperate need of his grace. And as we go into worship, if he's working on your heart, if you need prayer, I'd love to pray for you. Nate and Lord and Watney, our elders are in the back of the room. They'd love to pray for you. But as we step into this moment of worship, let's maximize it. Let's step into God's presence. And even as we were talking about before, let's be reminded that God so loved you. You're the disciple that Jesus loved so much, he came to die for. And I pray that that would spark a desire to be more like him. But let's worship and let's praise him now. Jesus, we love 
our way through a lot of text tonight. If you haven't connected the dots already, probably a good idea. Over these next weeks, if you haven't already, read through the Sermon on the Mount. Because we're taking it bite by bite, week by week, but to sit down and read it takes but minutes. And it's one of the most significant sermons ever preached. My opinion, the most significant thing ever preached by anyone. And so that's homework. But if you're an extra credit type person, there's a, a book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. He's got a couple phenomenal chapters in there where he talks about the Sermon on the Mount. And in one of them, uh, he, he writes about Tolstoy, this 19th century Russian author who was a believer. And he took these teachings very seriously. He was keenly aware of his inadequacy in light of God's ideal and these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And he constantly would make rules for self-discipline, like the Pharisees making rules to walk this out, and he constantly fell short. And throughout his life, he struggled to take the next step, which is trusting God's grace to work in and through our inadequacies. He struggled with depression, struggled with shame. But he he wrote towards the end of his life this powerful statement. He says, if I know the way home and I'm walking around it, or excuse me, if I know the way home and I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I'm staggering from side to side? The idea in our walk and in our pursuit of being more like Christ and more like God, isn't that we never stumble or we never stagger, but is that we've set our course to God's heart and that transformation in us and to his holiness, to set out and at least set our course to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And if you do that, 
and you set your hearts on him, that all these hard teachings that precede that and what we talked about tonight become easier and easier. Because if you, as you set your affections on Christ, the actions in your life will be renewed. May we always remember the fact that absolute holiness is the call, but absolute grace is the offer. And may we every day respond to both. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't just give us the prophets, you didn't just give us the Torah, but you came and lived it. And what we read tonight is red letters because you spoke it and you reveal your truth to us. And I pray that God, tonight would be just a fresh revelation that challenges us in new ways. God, to respond to the call of absolute holiness, but also reach our hands out to receive that absolute grace that's available at the cross. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here, speaking to each one of us. And God, I pray that as you've laid your finger in our hearts, God, help us to be faithful to respond, faithful to follow. Because as we look more like you, we'll better glorify you. And that's truly why we're here, Jesus, to bring you glory, to bring you praise, not just in these four walls, but in this region, in our workplaces, our classrooms, our neighborhoods, in every interaction. Jesus, help us to look more like you, be more and more holy, because it's going to glorify you more and more. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Come on, if, if the Holy Spirit's been working on you, don't leave without prayer. The Nawatneys would love to pray for you. And just a practical stuff. If God's working on your heart, share that with somebody. Your spouse, close friend. That's so often how the Holy Spirit takes it and seals it. But God bless you and keep you. Let his grace shine upon you. There's coffee to be had, conversations to be had, kids to be picked up. We'll see you next week.